Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt, live in California this morning, joined by Matthew Continetti. Matthew is the director of domestic policies at the American Enterprise Institute. He is a co-host of the Commentary Podcast, which is a must-listen to. The author, most recently, of The Right, a bestseller, and a frequent visitor to Fox News and other uh, television stations. Good morning, Matt. Thank you for joining me. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks for having me. I did not know until yesterday that you studied Japanese for years. Uh, and <laughs> I, did. I did not know that there was a second season of Tokyo Vice until yesterday. I love Tokyo Vice, and I don't particularly like Japan. I mean, I like the Japanese people, but Japan I find overwhelming. It turns out you like Japan. I, I do. I'm, I'm fascinated by Japanese culture, um, the Japanese civilization. I, you know, Hugh, I, I'm a little younger than you, and so I kind of came of age at the time of uh, – Rising Sun, the Michael Crichton book, and the idea that you know the Japanese were going to take over the world, eat America's lunch, America in decline, and so that inspired me to start studying Japanese, which I did throughout high school and into college. Uh, of course, uh, I should have been taking Mandarin, uh, but that's just more evidence, I think, that all of these uh, fads of American declinism. Are generational and at the it's end of the day it's better to know the uh, allies America triumphs. it's better to know the languages yeah. <laughs> of our allies when we go to war matt because then you'll be useful in japan but i do have a question before we get into serious stuff i found japan to be the most different culture of any other culture i've been around the world i've been blessed i've gone lots of places you name it i've almost been there except new zealand which i'm saving for retirement and uh, so i've experienced a lot of different cultures i think japan is the most different from America of anywhere I've been. What do you think? I, I think that's uh, fair to say. I think that's one reason I was uh, interested in studying the language and interested in visiting. It's an extremely uh, mannered culture. Uh, politeness and uh, decorum and tradition is extremely important. Deference. So uh, as a conservative, I was also interested in all of those aspects. But what's funny about Japanese culture is as uh, different as it may seem from Western culture, uh, the way in which the Japanese uh, appropriate Western ideas and then refashion them. And then for a culture that's also considered very conformist from outsider's perspective, there are some real interesting Japanese eccentrics. I mean, truly visionary artists and kind of uh, unique figures. So um, I encourage young people to, to, to learn Japanese and to, to study Japan because, as you're absolutely right, Hugh, it is good to know uh, our allies and, um, and I think build on that relationship now uh, over 75 years old. Uh, and I also know that you and J-Pod were talking yesterday about Shogun. The first Shogun may have been the worst television series ever made, so they can't get worse <laughs> than this. But you know, Tokyo Vice is fabulous. And you pronounce Yakuza differently than any way I've ever heard it pronounced. So I've obviously been mispronouncing it, but that's nothing new. Let's get to serious stuff, Matt. Um, sure. I think I think the commentary podcast is the best podcast available. I listen to it immediately after the Times of Israel, which is only 25 minutes. It's a new show. And then I do the hour of commentary. I want you to do two hours. I want you to do it twice a day. So pass that along to the gang. But but you're all way too sanguine about Joe Biden and Israel. 
Uh, you're all you're all way too. They'll they're they're not going to screw us. Here are some headlines. PM vetoes future Cairo negotiations. That's from the uh, Times of Israel. Israeli jets hit Lebanon in heaviest strike since Gaza war began. IDF credible evidence Hamas held hostages in communist Nasser Hospital. Wall Street Journal. Biden-Netanyahu relationship at boiling point as Rafah invasion looms. David Cameron, uh, this from the Times of Israel, Israel must ensure aid reaches Gazans, will breach international law if it doesn't. Germany and France, this is from the Times of Israel, fear humanitarian catastrophe in Rafah. And then this one, U.S. Arab allies reportedly set to propose Palestinian statehood plan within weeks. Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but Israel suffered the greatest massacre at the hands of terrorists since 9-11. They are our ally. They have been very careful in their treatment of civilians. They have set the standard for urban warfare, and we are leaning on them. And I think it's because Arabists, old and new, and the far left of the Democratic Party and a, a president who is impaired don't know what they're doing. And you guys... You all think it's going to be fine. I think they're going to stab Israel in the back. Well, uh, I'm not sure I've ever said it's going to be fine. Um, I think it's been extraordinary how uh, Biden has gone from his initial position after the massacre of October 7th, comparing Hamas to ISIS, to where he is today, where he's spending much more time trying to constrain Israel's actions and freedom of maneuver, trying to prevent Israel from entering Hamas's final stronghold, where the remaining hostages are, where the remaining leadership of Hamas is, where the remaining organized military brigades of Hamas are located. I think that's a travesty. And I think you're right. The reasons for it have to do with Biden's condition. It has to do with the uh, left wing tilt of his administration staff, the growing importance, I think, of politically correct, progressive uh, Arabist politics, and then also the domestic policy concerns, or rather the domestic political concerns that Biden has about Michigan. There was a very interesting Fox News poll yesterday, Hugh. We didn't get a chance to talk about it on Special Report, but it was of the state of Michigan, and it showed Trump with a narrow lead over Biden. It showed that among all Michiganers, uh, support for Israel it remains very strong, and that remains the case nationwide as well. But among Democrats, the Democrats in Michigan were split 37-37 between Israel wow. and Hamas. And I think that that is what is motivating Biden's actions. And I think it's irresponsible of him. It's irresponsible not just in the way he is treating our allies and th- treating the Jewish state, the only, the only nation whose existence seems to come under question and scrutiny. It's also politically irresponsible for him. The fact is there are many more votes from the pro-Israel community than there are for people who take the side of the Palestinian leadership or who sympathize with Hamas. So I don't understand why he is going down this path other than he is simply not in control of events when he should be following the path of, say, a Democratic senator like John Fetterman of Pennsylvania. Matt, I have a suggestion, which might be that the president, after reading the Her report, I don't say this cavalierly. I've said he's infirm for a long time. Now I believe he's impaired. And I think the eight-track tape in his head reverts back to the peace processes of Oslo and before and after that have all failed. 
and then he's back. He's just remembering stuff that isn't applicable post 10-7. All of Israel, like 99% of Israel, want to finish off Hamas, and the same amount want nothing to do with Gaza, but they're not going to let this happen again. And you know the old cliche, that which gets rewarded gets repeated. Do you think we could try praising Israel's restraint in the in the waging of a war of survival? And they have been so very careful in their approach to the war in Gaza. Do you think we might praise them at some point for their restraint? It would be helpful. It would be worthy to do that. And we should recall, too, that the IDF has taken great pains at following America's advice in order to reduce civilian casualties, thereby actually increasing the risk to Israeli soldiers. And what's remarkable, actually, is the, the uh, number of Israeli killed in action since the war began is relatively small. And I think that testifies to the skill of the IDF. There is this narrative, Hugh, that has taken hold in the American media that somehow Israel is losing the war or the war is unwinnable. That is not so. And I thought it was very important for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to go on American television over the weekend and say that three quarters of the Hamas military brigades have been destroyed. The victory can be achieved. And what's important now is for Biden to retain his original commitment to Israel that he said in the aftermath of October 7th. He called Hamas ISIS. And when America decided to go to war against ISIS, we didn't stop. We, we didn't say, all right, there's one last city. We're not going to go in because of fear of humanitarian consequences. It's important, I think, for Biden to continue down his original path and not the path he's taken in recent weeks, which will only lead to further violence. Hugh, the Middle East is on fire. We're involved in a low-intense conflict, that and could he be needs a strategy. We could be doing the full regional war by the time this podcast and radio show are over today. Don't go anywhere. Matt is going to stay with me through the break. We'll post it all on the other side, and I'll play it all. But don't go anywhere. He'll be back after the break. All my radio affiliates, stay with us on the QQ Show. I'm back now with Matt Continetti, who is the Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, the author most recently of The Right, and a co-host of the Commentary Pod. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you about the Commentary Pod. When do you guys find the time to do that? Because you're all very busy people And I want more like I want three hours a day like I do. And I want more of Christine and John and Matt and and the rest of the gang. Abe, I've never met Abe, but he sure has got a great radio voice. Please keep him out of radio. And and I think uh, Bethany's husband is that's how I refer to him is wonderful as well. So when do you do that and how much time does it take? Well, you know, Hugh, uh, having been in radio, uh, it takes a lot of preparation and uh, we do it in the mornings. We do it in the mornings. That's an understatement, right? Well, and no, so no, I, mean, I never we had don't, this experience. We don't do any preparation around oh. here. Oh, really? Okay, maybe I've been doing it wrong then. Because <laughs> since I've been on the podcast now for about a year, uh, my day begins. Uh, and uh, all, I, all I care about until we finish the pod is preparing for it, knowing what's going on in the news, trying to figure out what I my, my take is. And... It, what's been helpful to me is to kind of 
read the news through the lens of some of the thinkers who have been most important to me. So nowadays, when I prepare for the commentary podcast, I always think to myself, what would Charles Krauthammer say? How would he how would he approach the news and how would he think about current events with his principles and values in mind? And so that's kind of my heuristic. That's kind of my shortcut to prepare for the podcast. And um, it does take some time, but we're usually done by, I'd say, 10 a.m. in the morning and, and then we can begin the rest of our day. It's a great lens. It's a great lens. And I'm joking about not being prepared. You guys are obviously prepared. I don't know how you guys find the time to read and watch everything when the commentary recommends comes along. I'm always overwhelmed, although I was glad to hear about Tokyo Vice yesterday. I am curious. Have you got audience stats? Because my guess is commentary pod has gone through the roof since 10 seven like Dan Senor's call me back. Uh, we do. I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I've always been pleasantly surprised at the size of the commentary podcast audience. And more importantly for me, the loyalty of the audience and the responsiveness of the audience, not having been in radio, having spent my career mainly in print journalism, uh, I was kind of um, taken aback by how uh, uh, the relationship between a podcast or a radio program and its audience forms. And so that's been a great pleasure for me to get to hear from the audience, get to interact with them. And um, you, you really get a sense that the, the program matters. And I think the program has mattered even more since October 7th. And uh, definitely uh, there's been growth in the audience um, since then. I know that we're listened to uh, intently on Capitol Hill as well. And of course, as a as a Beltway boy, uh, that's very important to me. I have a theory, which is, and we have a minute to the break, is that quality news is rare. Brett Baer's show is the exception, special report. And I try and do quality news in the morning, but commentary can be listened to whenever anyone is around. And my theory is it's going to keep growing because it's quality news and commentary and you guys aren't afraid to say i got that wrong or i don't know or to disagree with each other seth etc uh so my hat is off to you don't say anything we got to come back from a break in the world of radio we have these things called commercials and so i have to come back from them don't go anywhere matt continenti i'll be right back with more of matt on the hugh hewitt show Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Matt Continetti is my guest, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, co-host of Commentary Pod, which you ought to download, follow, comment on, and also, of course, the author of The Right. Matt, I want to turn to the Republican Party. I have a piece over at Fox News today. I write for The Washington Post and Fox News. Matt writes for everybody. I don't know. I don't think Matt sleeps. And it it really offends me because I used to have that reputation of being the more prolific person on the right. But now Matt is actually the most prolific person on the right. Matt, I think Tom Cotton ought to be his vice president because you need someone in the mold of Nixon in 52 for Eisenhower. You need a generation changer and you need a hard edged attack vehicle. What do you make of my argument? I think Tom would be a great choice, Hugh. I think he's uh, strong. I think he fits the mold of the Jacksonians who support Donald Trump. Uh, people who don't want to take it anymore from the federal government, who believe in law and order, who are border hawks, uh, and who are hawkish on foreign policy when America is attacked and want to respond. Tom's a great communicator, uh, and I think he has an excellent strategic sense, but also a political sense. He is very savvy about American politics and has, that, of course, that great experience in the Senate. So he would definitely be on my uh, vice presidential shortlist, um, though, of course, 
as we know, Trump is considering other names as well. Yeah. Now, I want to raise the question of timing, because the former president's going to be in trial. Jack Smith has his way. He'll be in handcuffs for the next nine months. And the Supreme Court should put a stop to that. But assuming he doesn't, if you name your running mate early, that running mate can raise money and campaign and be on every show all the time. Is that an argument not just for Cotton, but for anyone being named early? I think the timing is important here. I think you're absolutely right, because we're we're entering this campaign where both of the major candidates will be off stage. Uh, Biden, because his staff secludes him from the public, and Trump, because he may be occupied by the trials if they go forward. So you do need to name a vice presidential selection, I think, earlier in the cycle than usual, just so you have a surrogate out there who can fundraise who can't attack, who can't appear in the media. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Trump names a vice presidential nominee shortly after he wraps up the nomination, which could be within the next month or so. Now, I think the Republican Party is on the precipice of a fatal error if they do not pass aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan immediately. I understand some of the hawks want to make a run at amending the supplemental with H.R. 2 and sending it back. This is a mistake. If we're worried about Russian nukes in space, and we are this morning, we ought to be worried about Russia on the ground. Why have we not moved the supplemental already, Matt, and then come back to the border? It doesn't make a lick of sense to me. I think there's some paralysis in the leadership, Hugh. I think there's some worry about potential blowback from the anti-Ukraine aid Republicans if Speaker Johnson allows a vote on this legislation. I think you should allow a vote on the national security legislation. Newt Gingrich talked about 70-30 issues. Well, the vote in the Senate was 70-29 for aid to Israel and Ukraine. This is a 70-30 issue. And I don't think we should allow a minority of the House of Representatives and, you know, a significant portion of the Republican Party, but not the entirety of the Republican Party, hold up this legislation. Let the vote go. It will pass three quarters of the House of Representatives, and it will show Vladimir Putin that America is still involved in the world and that we're still going to supply weapons that were produced in the United States to our allies in Israel and Ukraine so they can resist aggression. One savvy person told me that the Republicans who are normally hawkish in the House are afraid of primary challenges. That's nonsense. It's too late in the game to mount a primary challenge. If they vote for a discharge petition and vote this aid, it sends a signal not only to to Russia, but to Speaker Johnson and the Republican Party that we're still the party of Reagan. And I, I heard your conversation earlier this week that we're not. But I think we are. And I think Donald Trump is very much a peace through strength Republican, though he's much more less inclined to get involved than W, for example, in foreign wars. But do you think his advice is to do nothing at this point? Because that is playing into Putin's hands. I think Trump wants a situation where he is in charge. And so he would rather not anything major happen until he comes into office next year. But I think for the sake of American security and for the sake of the, the world, America does need to move this legislation. We need to replenish our defense industrial base. It has atrophied, and the way to do it is by passing the supplemental. Uh, urgency. Urgency is the uh, tone of the day. Matt Continenti on X at Continenti. Go find Commentary Podcast at iTunes, Spotify, anywhere where you find podcasts. Subscribe, follow it. Be smarter every day. When you're done with the You Do It show, go immediately to the Commentary Pod and the Times of Israel Pod, and you'll be the best informed of America. Stay tuned, America. Thank you, Matt. I'll be right back. 
want to remind everyone, a great sponsor of the program is MyPhDWeightLoss.com. Generalissimo went on that program more than a year ago, lost 50 pounds. He's kept it off. And uh, stress eating is not allowed, I don't believe, even though we're under a lot of... Uh, sure uh, tempted uh, to this week, aren't we? Uh, everybody is. I, but, but we don't... They, I'm sure they give you tricks of the trade to combat that because that's one of the habits. You broke that habit. You're not going by Del Taco or Taco no. Bell. Have not. No. You haven't relapsed. Have not relapsed. And um, that is a, And it's healthy. It's wise. It's yes. productive. 864-644-1900. That's... 864 864- Six four four nineteen hundred. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Josh Kroshauer joins me. Follow him on X at Josh Kroshauer. He is the editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. Josh, some headlines before we get started. Prime Minister Netanyahu veto- vetoes further Cairo negotiations. Biden is in the Wall Street Journal. Biden-Netanyahu relationship at boiling point as Rafah invasion looms. From the IDF, credible evidence that Hamas held hostages at Khan Yunus Nasser Hospital. Israel hits from the Washington Post. Israeli jets hit Lebanon in the heaviest strike since the Gaza War. From the Times of Israel, U.S. Arab allies reportedly set to propose Palestinian statehood planned within weeks. Germany and France fear, quote, humanitarian catastrophe in Rafah. And then David Cameron reverts to... Breckenridge long status in the House of Commons or the House of Lords and warns that Israel is close to breaching international law. What happened? Israel was the victim here. What is going on with our allies? Yeah, I mean, there is a, a lack of sort of moral leadership, moral clarity and strategic clarity, frankly, Hugh, because we heard from the, the White House and from you know most of those European allies that, that Israel should have the ability to take out Hamas's leadership, that that should, uh, should be the, the goal of both Israel and its allies. And that's what's, you know, looming in, in, in Rafah. Now, there are humanitarian considerations, which we've heard from the White House. Uh, and it sounds like Israel is trying to at least come and, and, and abide by what the U.S. is looking for and trying to, you know, evacuate and set up refugee camps elsewhere in Gaza as that operation commences. But, well, you know, look, how many times, Hugh, have we seen the stories leaked uh, in various newspapers that there's this big disconnect between Biden and Bibi. And yet it seems like, you know, they've been giving Israel, you know, largely uh, the, the space to do what it needs to do militarily to take out Hamas's leadership. I think the big test, Hugh, I mean, we, we see two different tracks when it comes to these negotiations. One is, will the hostages be released, you know, and, 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 and is that is that going to be, um, you know, accomplished through military means? And number two, are the top Hamas leadership uh, in, in, in Rafah or in Khan Yunis, are they going to be taken out? For Bibi's point of view, for the Israeli point of view, well, at least one of those two, I think, has to happen for the mission to be seen as a success. Um, and now the U.S. is pushing much more on the former. They want to have um, Israel cut some deal. Uh, which Israel doesn't find, it sounds like it's not not to its liking, but some deal where the fighting would stop just as Israel is getting closer to Hamas's leadership uh, in Rafah and an exchange would, would have some deal with the hostages. But Israel seems much more focused. And frankly, the Israeli public is much more focused on winning the war. And, and, and you know, they've done quite well militarily. And it sounds like they're they're getting pretty close to Hamas's uh, operational leadership. And they've done it very humanely as wars go. Josh, I'm begging you. You're an editor-in-chief, so that means you get to assign people to do things. Would someone please do a side-by-side of America's uh, assault on Mosul with Israel's assault on Gaza? 
How long did it last? How many refugee camps did we provide Mosul? How much aid did we send into Mosul when we were blowing ISIS to bits? How long did it last for? How many troops were used? Because I believe Israel has set the standard for fighting way, way above what international law requires, given their desire for long-term peace in the region and their concern for their new peace partners in, in Bahrain and the UAE and maybe in Saudi Arabia in the future. I just would like to see a side-by-side because they're putting up a standard that no one in the world has ever met, including us. Yeah, you know, a Jewish insider, we've been actually covering the military uh, side of the of the war. Like, that's all. I mean, we're hearing a lot about the, the, the civilian casualties, or we don't even really know the the ratio, at least we're not getting good estimates from Hamas's Ministry of Health. But look, I think there, there are a lot of comparisons to be made militarily. I think uh, when you saw Prime Minister Netanyahu show up on a couple Sunday shows last weekend, he was making that very comparison uh, with what the U.S. did in Mosul and in urban warfare uh, and how Israel has been operating by comparison very similarly and, and, be, and if anything, more, more cautiously when it comes to avoiding civilian casualties. Urban warfare, I mean, it's, 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 it's a thankless, it, it's, you, there's no good, op- war is, is, is hell and then there's no good options, uh, and, and, but, but it does feel like we've lost sort of sight of the strategic implications of what's happening and the defeat of Hamas would not just be good for Israel, but it would be good for Gazans who, who want to live. Uh, oh, and you bet Egypt and Saudi Arabia are cheering. Now, my last question, do you, do you know the name Breckenridge Long? Civil War uh, nope. politicians. No, nope. he was World War II State Department official yeah. in charge of not letting Jews get out of Germany. That wasn't his official title, but that's what he did. He was an anti-Semitic senior appointee of FDR in the State Department. It seems to me, and you got 30 seconds, John, that the State Department has wholly turned against Israel, gone completely against Israel. Took them a while to figure out they can't do it immediately, but now they've turned. Do you agree with my dire assessment of state? Well, Hugh, what's new, right? I mean, that, that, this goes back to, the, you know, you, it goes back to FDR, the Arabist, uh, you know, uh, mood within the State Department. There were already more, uh, more more diplomats representing the Arab interests, both in the UK and the US, going back to World War II, rather than, um, you know, those representing Israel or, or, or the creation of a Jewish state back in, the, in those days. So, yeah, like the, that's been something that's been uh, systemic, as they say, uh, in, in, in State Department history. Uh, So that doesn't come as any surprise. Yeah, I hope everyone go read up on Breckenridge Long, made famous in Winds of War under a pseudonym. But you put an anti-Semite at state, they swim in waters which are very, very well known to them. Josh Crosshour, follow him on X at Josh Crosshour. Welcome back, America, to Cities 92.2, excuse me, 92.9, the news and talk of Bloomington Normal. WRPWFM. Be ready to hear a lot from former Senator Jim Talent of Missouri. Not far from you, actually, in Bloomington, Illinois. Jim Talent, former Senator. Jim, I was thinking about you last night, David Vondrelli, who is living in Kansas City as well. You know Union Station. You know uh, Kansas City, Missouri well. How shocked were you that a Super Bowl parade come under fire yesterday? You know, you, I would like to say I was shocked. But this sort of thing is happening often enough now that it's it's heartbreaking, but it's almost like, well, where's the next thing coming from? And, you know, it's it's terrible, obviously, where it happens anywhere. 
but this is such an out, this, this, the chiefs are such a source of, of communal joy and unity, really to, to everybody in Missouri, but especially in Kansas city. And it's just heartbreaking. And I'm just praying that these people who've been seriously, that we don't get any more deaths out of it. Yeah. I was, and, I was uh, thinking to myself last night, Jim, if the Browns ever get to a Super Bowl, much less win one, sure. the parade will be the largest parade in the history of parades. But, of course, now we have to worry about nutters everywhere. I wrote, the, uh, David, I mean, even Kansas City. Kansas City? Isn't that like the most normal place in America other than Ohio? Oh, it's a, it's a great town. It, it's open. Uh, I mean, the, the, the boulevards in Kansas City are beautiful. They call it the city of fountains because of, of, of the numerous beautiful fountains they have in Kansas City. I always love being there. And, uh, you know, it's a town where every where, where people from the civic people to the I mean, the, the business, the civic community, everybody loves the city. Everybody wants the city to prosper. They work well together. I mean, obviously they have problems, but it's just it's just terrible. I it's follow Mayor Q. I follow the mayor on X because I think he's kind of funny. All right. Let me turn to defense stuff. And to my new audience, Jim is our go to guy on defense. We had this warning yesterday, and it seems like the Russians have an anti-satellite nuclear weapon about to go or ready to go. Did it justify the chairman coming out there and getting people whipped up? And do you think Jake Sullivan handled it well? And why aren't we passing the Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, America defense bill if we're worried about Russia? I mean, I really don't get it. Okay, well, if Mike Turner's worried, uh, you know, I'm worried. Uh, Now, having said that, um, the Chinese and to a significant extent, the Russians have had the ability to attack our satellites in every orbital dom- domain for a number of years. That's one of the reasons President Trump wanted a space service and one of the reasons Congress gave it to him. We need to disperse and harden the architecture. So I'm waiting to hear more. As for Sullivan, no, he didn't handle it well, but I'll give him a pass because obviously he was uh, for a while because obviously he was surprised. I do believe he, he had this briefing scheduled. So let's see what he says in the next couple of days. But, yeah, we need to tell more to the American people than we've said to this point, because right now none of us even know what specifically the concern is uh, that Congressman Turner has. All right. In now I want to run some headlines. Of- headlines past you. Uh, from the Times of Israel, PM, BB vetoes further Cairo negotiations on hostages. From the Post, Israeli jets hit Lebanon in heaviest strike since Gaza began. Uh, IDF, credible evidence Hamas held hostages at Khan Yunus's Nasser Hospital. From the Wall Street Journal, Biden-Netanyahu relationship at boiling point as Rafa invasion looms. From Times of Israel, uh, David Cameron, Israel must ensure aid reaches Gaza or it will breach international law. Germany and France fear humanitarian catastrophe in Rafa. What is going on here? Israel is the victim. They have to kill off Hamas yeah. or it will happen again. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, the, the problem here is that Israel is insisting on winning. And uh, the Biden administration and much of Western Europe doesn't want them to win. They were OK with them fighting for a while, but not winning. Uh, you know, Israel is, has very substantially destroyed Hamas to this point, and they're going to continue doing it until they complete the job, and they should. And then they very well may turn north, because as you know, uh, they have a, two, 300,000 of their citizens who've had to evacuate their homes in the north part of the country because of concerns about Hezbollah. They can't tolerate that. 
And I'm all for it. And by the way, the the, the groups they're destroying are enemies of the United States. Yeah, I, I heard. Listen they're to Dan Senor, the great Dan Senor this week, interviewed an Israeli journalist who detailed there are four untouched regiments of Hamas in Rafah. They can't let them stay there. Yeah. It's like leaving ISIS in Mosul. Yeah, Rafa and, and Kanyanis are the two areas where they're still organized, if you will, as far, uh, Hamas uh, battalions. And they pretty much cleaned out. Now, there's going to be ongoing sporadic fighting for some time. But I, I think the mission has been very substantially accomplished. It's still going to take a while. And by the way, you have to admire their courage, their ability, the way they've done this. They've minimized casualties, minimized civilian casualties. I wouldn't have said before this that any army was better at urban warfare than our army. But I got to tell you, I mean, the Israelis are really showing people how to do this properly. And I, I want them to win. And we should be applauding their restraint and their care with which they wage war against the terrorists. And instead, we've got Joe Biden yelling at Bibi. Noah C. Rothman, senior political writer for National Review, joins me. Noah, I don't know if you're a sports fan or not, but the Cleveland Cavaliers beat the Bulls last night to finish 36-17 and 17 before the All-Star break in second place. Are you not stunned by this news? Well, this is the first time hearing about it, so I have to tell you, absolutely shocked. No, <laughs> not, don't follow uh, all, just about any athletics very closely, although my son plays basketball and my wife coaches him. so that's You, you that's should my tell him he should be a Cavs fan. Let's get serious. I want to read to you five headlines, Noah. A uh, friend of the program you were referred to on the commentary pod yesterday. I think you've been dallying with other podcasts and broadcasters. Prime Minister Netanyahu vetoes further Cairo negotiations. Number two. Israeli jets hit Lebanon in heaviest strikes since Gaza war began. Number three, IDF, credible evidence Hamas held hostages at Khan Yunus's Nasser Hospital. Number four, from the Wall Street Journal, Biden-Netanyahu relationship at boiling point as Rafa invasion looms. Number five, UK Foreign Minister David Cameron, Israel must ensure aid reaches Gazans will breach international law if it doesn't. Number six, Germany, France, fear humanitarian catastrophe in Rafa. The prime minister vows to press ahead. And then that that's Bibi. And then finally, U.S. Arab allies reportedly set to propose Palestinian statehood plan within weeks. That's a lot of headlines. How do you react, Noah Rothman? The administration's schizophrenia has become impossible to ignore and it's wholly counterproductive. Uh, Joe Biden comes out yesterday, I'm sorry, earlier in the week, Monday, I believe, alongside King Abdullah. And he reiterates what he said in, in a Thursday speech that I'm looking for a ceasefire here, something temporary, but I'm going to extend it as long as I possibly can into something resembling a permanent ceasefire, which is something progressives in America have been advocating. That admission makes Israel's compliance with Joe Biden's uh, desires uh, very unlikely. Uh, he just undermines his own position there. And then he, he says something that's completely at odds. So he says, you know, in Rafa, we expect Israel to take all efforts to protect civilian life, which is reasonable. At the same time, we have no, no desire for displacements. These two desires are in conflict. Israel's promoted this plan, pitched this plan to Egypt, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, that would create camps, refugee camps, with all appropriate humanitarian assistance in and around uh, Rafa. But that would involve displacements. Now, which is it? Are we protecting civilian life? Or are we protecting, uh, are we avoiding the kind of 
aesthetics, I guess, the kind of environment that this administration doesn't like. This hostage raid in Rafah was extremely successful in two ways. One, it freed two hostages on Super Bowl Sunday. And two, it demonstrated that Rafah is not this community of innocent civilians who have just been forced into this situation by Israel's aggression. Hamas has penetrated every aspect, every element, every city and every town in Gaza. Its citizens are hostage to it and do its bidding, including housing prisoners. There is no place where Israel can't go because it's just out of bounds in this conflict. The whole of Gaza is involved in this conflict. Civilians and Hamas, uh, Hamas terrorists alike, they're all intertwined. That's why Israel needs to complete its mission with all due alacrity, because on the other side of that is protection for Hamas or protection for uh, Gaza's citizens. Not before. I agree. No question. Does the name Breckenridge Long ring a bell for you? No, it does not. He was the senior State Department official under FDR who repeatedly turned down requests for Jews to enter America during the Holocaust when they were fleeing Ah. Germany. It seems to me in just the last week, our European allies and our American State Department Arabists have turned completely on Israel, put the burden on it. It's been four months since the massacre. They cannot leave Hamas and Sinwar in the tunnels in Rafah. They can't do that. It's like doing cancer surgery and leaving a tenth of the cancer in there. Yeah, and that seems intuitive to you and me, but I don't feel like the international community is willing to give up this myth that it's erected around Hamas as a some sort of quasi-legitimate governing authority in Gaza. UN relief officials are on, on television on Sky News the other day. Um, Martin Griffiths, who's uh, oh, one of what the, a bozo. the UN relief he goes out there and he says, uh, you know, the, these these guys are just not terrorists. They're they're a legitimate governing authority. Yeah, there's some bad apples, whatever. But generally, you have to talk about this like it is an elected government. And it's frankly sacrificed its legitimacy well before 10-7, but certainly after. You cannot say that if this is the sovereign, if this is the legitimate sovereign of Gaza, then all of Gaza is engaged in this hostility. That is that is just a, a basic fundamental aspect of the laws of armed conflict going back since we've had laws of armed conflict. Uh, it's simply obnoxious, but it's also illustrative of how they uh, have established these double standards, the international community and those who are beholden to them like this, like the, this per current administration, which is very internationalist in its outlook, um, have erected this idea, this belief that Hamas uh, deserves to have all the protections afforded to a legitimate governing authority. It does not. It does not abide by those protections. It hides behind them. It expects Israel to abide by them, and then it violates them with reckless abandon. No, how do we explain? The, how do we explain the standard applied to Assad in the Syrian genocide, and the standards applied to every other Arab government that is not a democracy, and that means all of them? And yet demand of Israel adherence to some set of rules that does not exist in international law. Why is that the default position of Democrats? Well, that's parallel is actually really useful because, I mean, we allied in in our memories how the Syrian civil war unfolded in the first two, three, four years. Assad got a lot of protection from his fellow Arabists in the region, from Arabists in the West uh, and it wasn't well until after John Donald Trump took office that we began to take that conflict seriously and 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 approach this genocidal uh, campaign that he was waging like it was a genocidal campaign. Barack Obama 
did everything he possibly could to avoid uh, the logical conclusions of his own rhetoric, up to and including begging the Russians to come in to provide some sort of a face-saving way out of his September 10th, 2013 speech, the most confused speech I maintain in the history of the presidency, in which he said, yeah, we got to go into this place, but Russia's going to rescue me from having to do anything about that. They went in, they said, we were, we got rid of all their chemical weapons stockpiles. They didn't. All they did was protect their their, port of, their warm water ported Tartus on the Mediterranean and uh, create the conditions in which we had a very dangerous and destabilizing uh, several years in which Barack Obama eventually had to introduce troops into Western Syria because it had devolved into ISIS, with, by the way, the support of Assad. Assad was buying oil from ISIS. Uh, and in order, and then finally, when he got in there, we had NATO assets and Russian assets engaged in a hot conflict, shooting at each other's proxy targets in a very dangerous fashion for years. Indeed, that condition still persists a little bit today. Uh, it was that delusion, it was that effort to avoid containing that conflict that led to a much worse conflict. Those lessons have not been learned. Those lessons seem to be uh, studiously avoided by especially this administration, but just about everybody else in the United States who is conflict averse, nobly, justly conflict averse. This country doesn't like foreign entanglements, but our desire to avoid them makes them worse, especially in places like in the Levant, in the Middle East, in Israel, some of the most fought over territory in the world. We want to avoid our obligations there because it's just too hard to contemplate them. But in doing that, we end up creating worse conditions for us in the future. You know, my theory is a little bit more simple, which is that they hate Bibi, and therefore they'll do whatever they can, because Bibi stands up to Americans. They don't care what we think. Last question for you, Noah. We've got a, uh, a high alert on something that the Russians are either going to put into space or have put into space. Russia is having another Sputnik moment. We're scared. Why aren't we passing the Ukraine aid yesterday, then? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to be worried about Russia. And not to have passed the Ukraine. I, I'm a big proponent of blowing this through via discharge petition. I don't know if that's going to happen. But if, if that's a problem, if we're all going to get alarmed about a Russian space weapon, why are we not helping the Ukrainians? Well, you, it beats me, Hugh. And uh, Frank, and I was speaking with the leader yesterday, Leader McConnell, um, and I was and some other lawmakers and asking, hey, do we have a plan B to restore American depleted American ordnance stocks, which is what the supplemental is all about. It is depleting the stocks that we've taken from places like South Korea and you know, in Israel in order to support this war before 10-7 and in America. And their answer is no, there is no plan B to just re to uh, restore our depleted ordnance stocks. It's just going to persist as a big red flag for us and a tempting target for our adversaries abroad. So, no, I can't understand why that is. And frankly, if Mike Turner released this information just to light a fire under his own conference, God bless him. Yep. Good for him. The insurgents in this con conference, you know, they're, how dare you, sir? They rend garments and hold their pearls and say, how dare you? The decorum of this institution doesn't abide by it. Well, it's too bad. You guys not when you've got you a far left and a far you. right that are nutters. Not when you've got Matt Gates and AOC. By all means, light fires all over the place. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Good morning, America. Glad you can be with me. I have a new column over at FoxNews.com explaining why Tom Cotton is Donald Trump's best choice as a running mate, generating a lot of commentary, including my favorite. He, he might be a good choice, but he adds nothing to the base. You need a woman or a minority here. No, that is old school thinking. I'm joined now by Leland Vitters, who's the anchor of News Nation every night if you're watching it. Good morning, Leland. How are you? Hey, good to see you, Hugh. Tell me when you think Donald Trump will get around to selecting a running mate. Will he wait until the convention or a week before the convention is his typical or be typically Donald Trump and do something completely out of uh, a different place on the political map than we've been before and go early? I think he, he will do both in that he'll do something completely different uh, than politically we've seen before, which is he'll pick somebody who's sort of an unusual pick. Uh, but I would say that for, for all intents and purposes, there's not a reason to pick anybody early. He gets to have all of us speculate um, wildly for the next few months. He gets to see how the media reacts to various people that he uh, floats and various names that are put out of Mar-a-Lago to see how both uh, conservative media reacts and also how mainstream media reacts and how uh, the polling changes based on who he picks. It's sort of like a, a long running season of The Apprentice. Well, I do. I want to argue that point with you a little bit, Leland. The reason I am arguing for an early naming, uh, the former president's going to be in various courtrooms for the next nine months for a various that that's a zero sum game. Every hour in a courtroom is an hour not spent raising money or campaigning. So if you're going to be off the track, have someone else drive the car and go out, especially to raise money and to deliver a message a day, does that change your calculus if, in fact, any of these go to trial? I think if one of these go to trial, then I think there's a lot of calculus that change. Is it the one that changes naming the vice president? I don't know. Um, we've seen Donald Trump be extraordinarily practical when it comes to picking a vice president, a la Mike Pence, um, in, in that choice in 2016, which was somebody who was very different than anybody thought. Um, and it was because it, it filled a specific niche. It reassured uh, conservative and specifically evangelical voters. So I think he can be very practical um, in this decision. I'm not sure that uh, any of these are going to go to trial before June, say, which, uh, you know, maybe New York. Uh, but if you're Donald Trump, what's better for you? Uh, all focus on you being in a courtroom, which we've seen every time that the media focuses on that, his poll numbers go up, or the media trashing your uh, vice president candidate on the issue du jour and making that vice president candidate answer for Donald Trump being in a courtroom. Now, eventually, we're going to get to the merits of some of these cases, and I'm not sure it's always going to work for Donald Trump when they have, for example a televised New York hearing with Alvin Bragg and his team making allegations about the president that are uninterrupted by the president. That's what's going to be former president. That's what's going to be a problem. I want to ask you your assessment. Yesterday, Jack Smith went to the Supreme Court and he filed a bunch of papers urging the court to move quickly 
uh, move quickly to dismiss the appeal of the president from the D.C. Circuit. Uh, what do you think is going to happen there, Leland? I, I know my way around a courtroom, so I have my theory about what's going on. But you're a broadcaster. What do you think? What do you hear about Jack Smith's effort to sort of desperate to get to trial soon? The question to me is, how does the Supreme Court get out of this? Right. We saw on the ballot access issue, um, if not six or seven, maybe even eight votes um, for keeping Donald Trump on the ballot. Uh, the idea of getting to a nine zero. If you're John Roberts uh, and you want to restore some faith in the court, you want the least political uh, answer to this story or to this to this case, if you will. Uh, that's kicking the can down the road. That's saying we're going to hear the appeal on a normal uh, basis uh, of an, uh, on the Supreme Court's normal calendar, uh, which would put this case uh, after the election, which which punts for the Supreme Court. They don't have to decide about presidential immunity. They can let the voters decide uh, and then deal with the issue of Donald Trump loses. Uh, I'm not sure how John Roberts gets out of things easier than doing that if he can convince other uh, Republicans on the court to go with that. Uh, that gives them an that gives the court an off ramp, uh, and if we've watched the Supreme Court over the past you know number of years, um, we've seen John Roberts uh, try awfully hard to uh, you know restore faith in the court to to think about his image uh, and his legacy as a Chief Justice. Yeah, I got to add to this. I've known the Chief since 1985, and I've known a few of the other justices a long time. I don't know Justice Kagan or Sotomayor or uh, Brown Jackson, Jackson Brown. But I will say this, the uh, court can't avoid, neither can it punt. It has to render a decision on the D.C. Circuit decision one way or the other. They got to turn down cert or they have to accept cert. It takes four votes to accept cert. It takes five votes to continue the stay. In the interest of justice, the ordinary criminal defendant, this would not even be a question. So, Leland, how do you explain to people anything other than the norm when it's a former president of the United States, ought we not to be backing, bending over backwards to make sure that this is not a political prosecution? And do you think that will move not the chief justice, but Elena Kagan or one of the lefties that criminal defense rights matter in the United States? And this is a rough shot running over Donald Trump's rights. You make a great point um, that. Typically, there is great deference given to the rights of criminals. That's one of the great things about our process. That's the accused. The, founders the thought accused. Was really important. That's why the rights accused. given to the accused, not um, to criminals. Yeah. The the the, the, the fundamentally important to the founders. That's why they put it in the first in in, in the Constitution. Um, and later, as the courts went back and looked at that. I think what's interesting is when you look at Jack Smith's arguments about why the rights of the accused here are trumped by the rights of the government and the rights of the people. Um, and it, it is a extraordinarily difficult argument to make. I think you make a great point um, that, again, there is going to be enormous pressure on the court um, to put aside the political things and to find ways to uh, decide this case, quote unquote, on the merits and what you point to is something that is going to have an awful lot of uh, pressure uh, exerted. And there's going to be a lot of questions, just like the one you said, is, that, you know, why should Donald Trump be treated like anybody else? And on its merits, the, the ruling uh, that would be given to anybody else is very clear. On its merits, if, we, if he were not named Donald Trump, uh, he would have lost the appeal. I believe the D.C. Circuit panel did the right thing. 
then there would be 90 days to file in bonk. And if the en banc petition was denied, as they usually are, he would have an additional period of time to file to seek certiorari. And then the court would consider it in due course. And they might set argument over. Andrew McCarthy points out to me this may or may not have any impact on the Georgia case, which is falling apart because of Fannie Willis and her boyfriend and on Manhattan, Alvin Bragg. But it's likely to. Let me go to a different subject, Leland. Uh, you did News Nation last night after the shooting, did you not? Mm-hmm. How did you report it, given we that we didn't know anything? We reported it um, as picking up on a couple of words from the Kansas City police chief, where she said that these shooters are bad actors, which led us to believe that this was not a mass shooting or an attack on the parade as much as it was a couple of people uh, settling a score, had some beef and just happened to be at the parade. Um, and it, the shooting after the parade, and it was in a you know sort of in an area adjacent to it. Uh, it doesn't make it any less tragic, but it does sort of change push this from um, some kind of terrorism situation to uh, a criminal activity situation. What I think is going to be interesting to watch over the coming uh, days is who are the shooters? Um, do they what criminal past do they have? If the police chief is saying they they are bad actors. And how does that play into a situation that is in Kansas City that's not very different than my hometown of St. Louis, which is a horrific uh, spike in crime uh, because of a willingness to have soft on crime prosecutors? Is that part of the story? And we just have to wait probably maybe not even 24 hours for the discussion Missouri opens carries laws uh, to begin. Uh, Well, I didn't even know they had an open carry law. Do we have... Any idea of the age and demographic of the suspected shooters and the number of them? Because, Leland, I read everything this morning, and you've I got have, the whole News Nation at, at your disposal. I just couldn't find any specificity. Yeah, I, I, have not, I have not gotten anything this morning, Hugh, when I, when I got up. Uh, I have not heard any new information on who the shooters themselves are, and I'm going back through to see if anything late uh, breaking came through from us. Uh, we had on a reporter from WDAF, which is our uh, affiliate in Kansas City, last night. I asked that same question. I said, what are your sources inside the police department saying that the police department has been incredibly tight-lipped? I think what was interesting was they didn't say we're looking for anybody, but they said that we had, they had three people detained. They won't call the three people detained individual suspects. I think they're still trying to sort out exactly what happened. 22 people are shot, uh, one fatally. Mm-hmm. Eight with immediately life-threatening injury. So God knows they may have expired by now. Pray for them. Seven additional uh, victims had life-threatening injuries. Six had minor injuries. Several of the victims are children. I can't imagine how that's an unintentional attack. I mean, do you have a scenario in your head um, where people start shooting in a metro station? It happened at Union Station, I believe, in, in Kansas City. I don't know Kansas City well. Uh, maybe you do since you're from St. Louis. But I just don't know how you hit 22 people in what some people suspected online last night was a gang matter. Well, if you have, if you, at least in one of the videos that we had um, that showed the tackling, and I'm going to be very specific in, in my words here, but the, t- the tackling of, of another person, because we don't know if this was a shooter. Some, some fans tackled somebody and then they were arrested. There was a picture um, of what appeared to be an AR-15 style weapon, um, some kind of semi-automatic rifle um, with, a, with clips in it. 
um, that this person had allegedly dropped uh, when they were tackled. Um, you can imagine when you have a million people packed into a small area and two people with semi-automatic rifles start shooting at each other um, who, who don't really have a lot of fire discipline, uh, the numbers of those hit by stray bullets goes up very quickly. Yeah. So Last uh, question, as Leland. tragic as this is. Since you're a national security reporter and a Pentagon vet, what do you make of our nukes in space story yesterday and whether or not it's genuinely alarm or whether or not Jake Sullivan coming out and saying, I can't tell you is worse than saying nothing? I think Mike Turner's got a lot of explaining to do. A lot. Oh, oh really? And, and it. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I think the fact that you have Rubio and Warner from the, from the Senate Intelligence Committee saying that uh, tells you everything you need to know. Leland Vittert of News Nation. Always a pleasure, Leland. Thanks for getting up early to join me. Watch him on News Nation every single night. And I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I'm Keith Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Cities 92.9, the news and talk of Bloomington Normal in Illinois, WRPW FM. Welcome to the universe. We are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. That's what we call. We began in July 10, 2000, with this program in syndication on eight stations. We now have over 480 affiliates and uh, live Monday through Friday, 6 to 9 a.m. Tape delayed in some places by an hour or two to allow for a morning drive to catch up with it. And you may not know me in Bloomington Normal. I don't assume you do. I'm a radio guy. You might know my voice. Uh, I have done five presidential debates. I have done dozens of Senate debates. I have got, well, the brief bio is this. I didn't do it at the beginning of the month, and so I can do it now for the benefit of our friends in Bloomington Normal. I am a son of Ohio, which makes me inordinately common sense driven. As is almost everyone from the Midwest, just give me the facts. I don't spin them. I just tell you the truth. I give you the news in the morning. I have K through 12 education in the um, Warren, Ohio schools, K in public schools, 1 through 12 Catholic schools. I am very Catholic, but I am an evangelical Roman Catholic Presbyterian. Because the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, my wife of 41 years, is a Presbyterian. So I go to Mass on Saturday, and then I go to Presbyterian Church on Sunday. We have... Uh, parishes in both coasts. I spend the winter in California. Then I go back to the Beltway until I escape up north for a few weeks in Maine. So I move around the country. So unlike other Beltway journalists, I actually talk to people who do not have Beltway-itis. And I did that yesterday at lunch and had some wonderful questions by people who are completely removed from the Beltway and they're normal, as opposed to Beltway people. And I do this purposefully. I move around the country so I don't become a Beltway person. So I grew up in Warren, Ohio, which is the heartland, the the, um, the original capital of the Western Reserve, which I think really makes it the capital of America, uh, but for D.C., and D.C. ought to be abolished and given back to Maryland because it's now becoming an ungovernable city and dangerous. But in the meantime, out of Warren, Ohio, and my wonderful Catholic education at John F. Kennedy High School, uh, Howland High School, by the way, is the source of all evil in the world. I think Putin is the principal at Howland High School. I'm not sure, but that wanted to put that on the record. 
I went to Harvard after Harvard. I took a couple of years off and went to California where I became first uh, research assistant to David Eisenhower about Ike, a book called Eisenhower at War, where I did a TikTok of Eisenhower throughout his years of generalship in charge of the armies in North Africa, Italy, and then Europe. After that, I went to law school at the University of Michigan Law School. Now, that means I have to root against my alma mater all the time. Great law school, terrible state. And I love Michigan. My friends in Detroit know that. I love everything about Michigan. Mostly, I love seeing it in the rearview mirror. And they're the national champions. I understand that. But not for long. Ryan Day picked up Chip Kelly, and we got five five-star QBs in the QB room. A couple of amazing running backs, remarkable returning people. They've reloaded, as they say in Ohio State. They will win the national championship. Season ticket holder to the Browns. Since they returned in 1999, I went to every home game for the Browns from 1965 until they were. I went to college in 1974. And then many afterwards, when I was home, until they got ripped out of there by the man who must not be named and sold for ransom to Baltimore. After uh, Michigan Law School, I clerked on the D.C. Circuit for two judges. Uh, one of them got sick, and in between Judge Rob and Judge McKinnon, I did work for future justices, Scalia, Ginsburg. I worked for Robert Bork, Skelly Wright, Spots Robinson. Because when a judge goes down, as my judge did with the stroke, the other judges give the clerks cases. And so I, it was a unique experience. It was wonderful. From there, I went to the Department of Justice under Bill Smith and Ed Meese. When you hear me talk about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, you actually hear someone talking about it who knows what they're talking about it because I was the FISA assistant to two attorneys general. I had every clearance in the world. I saw everything that was domestic related. Every single warrant for two attorneys generals came across my, when I was there, came across my desk for approval before they went to the attorney general. We never got turned down by the court. So then I went to the White House counsel's office under Fred Fielding and Dick Hauser and was wonderful. Uh, I didn't have anything to do because the future chief justice of the United States was also on that team of seven lawyers. So he did all the hard things, and I protected the seal of the presidency of the United States. And nobody did it better. I might add, when we get together for reunions, everyone acknowledges, there's the president, there's the seal of the presidency guy. Hugh Hewitt could do that. Now, if you've got to pass power from Ronald Reagan to George H.W. Bush because of cancer surgery, you go to the future chief justice. But I did the seal. I did the seal. And they were it was great fun. After that, I went to the agencies over to general counsel at NEH. I became the general counsel of OPM and then got confirmed by the Senate, unbelievably, 100 to nothing, to be the deputy director of the OPM. And then I became the acting director of the OPM. And then I went out to D.C. from left D.C., fetching Mrs. Hewitt, and I moved to California in 1989, where we stayed until 2016. I did a few things out here. I practiced law, made some money. I began my radio career at KFI AM. Uh, 640 in L.A. Then I began my television career at PBS affiliate 28, the uh, nightly news and public affairs show Monday through Friday on PBS. So I worked for PBS for 10 years, did a national series called Searching for God in America, wrote books, written 16 books or 15 and one tenth book. Actually, Hank Adler co-authored one book with me. It was about taxes. So Hank did most of the heavy lifting on that. The other 15 are mine. And then um, I retired and went to D.C. when Bill Bennett retired from the Morning Drive show in the East. Now, anyone in radio will tell you two-thirds of Morning Drive listeners are east of the Mississippi, which is why I moved. Bigger audience. Millions and millions of people. Drives Mike Gallagher crazy that more people listen to Hugh Hewitt's show than Mike. But that's okay, Mike. Don't worry about that. Radio talker Mike Gallagher. 
He's a fine man. And if you know, if you support the police, the Fallen Officers Fund that Mike Gallagher runs over at uh, Radio Talker Mike, Google Mike Gallagher and Radio, and you'll find his website. And Mike is amazing when it comes to helping the families of the fallen officers in the United States. But I love to kid him. He loves to kid me. And he's on a lot of these stations that I'm on. I don't know that he's on City 92.9, the news and talk of Bloomington Normal. But if he's not, you can listen to him online. He's wonderful. Great. great. A lot of great Salem hosts out there. But, but I've been doing this longer than any other person in syndication. And the reason is I do the news. Uh, out here in California, is on the air resource on the California Air Quality Management District for Southern California, on the California Arts Council, on the Prop 10 Commission. I've never not had a job, part time, not being paid, obviously, but officially appointed and covered by ethics rules, sent from 1983 to 2016. I was governed by the ethics laws of the United States or California, so I'm squeaky clean. There's, I'm just so dull. I've been married to the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt for 41 years. We have three wonderful children, five great-grandchildren, uh, and I should say five terrific grandchildren, not implying that they're, the oldest of them is 12 and the youngest of them are very young. Uh, and I am the grandfather of Genghis Kate, and I cannot be held responsible. I want that out there. If she comes to um, Bloomington Normal, I've got no responsibility for Genghis Kate. They had Valentine's Day at her preschool yesterday. Havoc ensued, and not my fault. I really I have no responsibility for Genghis Kate other than to love her, and I do. So I, I, I do that. I do all these different things. I write for foxnews.com. I'm a contributing columnist for the Washington Post. I appear on anywhere that will have me. For five long years, I was under contract for NBC until Meet the Press decided that they didn't want any outside-the-beltway serious conservatives on and we parted ways. Loved NBC, did the debate with them in November. Get along fine with everyone over there, Kristen, Chuck, Lester Holt. But they just don't want real conservatives on Meet the Press. So I left. I just couldn't stand doing MSNBC. But I did it. It was part of my contract. I like Al Sharpton. He's just not coherent about anything. Uh, I get along with Joy Reid. She's just never been right about anything. I get along with everyone. I'm a nice guy. Unless I'm talking about priests on Ash Wednesday and now get ready for a rant. And I apologize in advance. Yesterday was Ash Wednesday. So I went to church, to the church that advertised confession from 4.30 to 5.30. So advertised on their website and in their bulletin. And I arrived at the end of the distribution of ashes. Now, I am not a great believer in the reception of ashes because I was an altar boy, and I know it's not a sacrament. It is a ritual whereby the priests or those who are applying the ashes say, remember, man, that art dust unto dust thou shalt return, which is a good reminder, and I know it, and I can do the Apostles' Creed for you. I'm as Catholic as they come. But I went to go to confession on the first day of Lent, which has been my practice for years, and I was informed by a nice parishioner who had received their ashes. Are you in line for confession? And I said, yeah, I'm standing right here. There's the confessional, 4.30. I was there early. He said, there won't be any confessions today. Father says it's too much going on. And I said, no confessions? It says 4.30. And the fellow could see I was a little put out. He said, no, there's, there's a lot of ash distributing. All right, I understand priests are hardworking. I understand that we have a pre-shortage in the United States. 
I do not understand getting your butt in the box on Ash Wednesday. I don't get it. You've got thousands of people who are showing up at church who are serious Catholics who are there to receive ashes, and they can't go to confession at the beginning of Lent. So if they wanted to receive, they want to go to daily Mass and receive the elements every day for 40 days, they can't do it if they had any sin that they needed to confess, like skipping Mass on their soul. I really, I just want to say to you priests out there, God bless you, you work hard. I pray for you every day. Put your butt in the box on Ash Wednesday, and often during Lent. That's my Catholic talk. Anyway, back to the new listeners. I now do CNN once every three months, and I'm on Brett Bear often on Special Report on the panel because Brett runs the best news show. I'm also on the Salem News Channel every morning. I'll be hosting uh, early coverage on Tuesday night on the Salem News Channel, Super Tuesday, and I am here. I'm ubiquitous, and I'm the same guy yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and will be until I meet my maker and he cleans me up, dresses me up for heaven. So if you want a good, solid, mainstream, mere Christian who can speak Protestant and evangelical, one river, two banks, that's me. Stay tuned. And if you're in the cities of Bloomington and Normal, especially cities 92.9, WRPWFM, stay right here. Lots more good stuff coming up on the New York